to just see the level of open conversations around helping each other navigate these uncharted territories was, to me, I was like, yep, that's it. Like, that's a turning point. Hey, everybody, I'm Lori Brudeman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. Today's guest is Lars Schmidt. He's the founder of Amplify, an HR executive search firm, but he's also the author of the new book, Redefining HR, Transforming People Teams to Drive Business Performance. Lars is on the show today because he's my friend and I'm incredibly proud of him. But more importantly, I love the way he thinks, especially about the future of work. So if you're interested in a conversation where someone's actually positive about human resources, well, I know you're going to enjoy it. So sit back and learn from my friend, Lars Schmidt. Hey, Lars, welcome to the podcast. Lori, it's good to be here with you. What a journey we've been on to arrive at this moment in time where we both have books coming out within two weeks of one another. I am making a flat out commitment to you today, Lars. We're only talking about your book. I'm going to reciprocate. So here's the funny thing. Like we're both podcasters and we both are authors and we both have books coming out in the same month. So I feel like we're going to Freaky Friday and uh, <laughs> switch this up. We might be talking about your book on my podcast very, very soon. Oh my God. Except I'm so, I don't know how you feel as an author, but Scott Stratton told me, you'll know you're an author when you're sick of your book. That resonates with me. I'm not there, but I, I going into marketing and publicity and PR mode, even for the short period of time that I've been in so far, like I can see how that will happen at some point. I'll get there. I'll get there. Is, is, is there a moment of satisfaction with that? Like when you get there, you're just like, oh, now I'm a real author. Like I'm going to go like put on a robe and slippers and a pipe or something. <laughs> well, I don't like pipes unless they've got certain things in them, not old tobacco, but I feel like an author. I felt like an author. I bet you do too, right? I mean, I don't have imposter syndrome. Do you? No, no, I don't. Like it, it feels very real now. It's such a journey, like going through the writing and the edits and the reformatting and the proofreading and just all the steps you have to do to actually get to the completed book. Like I haven't touched my book yet. Like you've touched your book. I, I should be touching my book in probably two weeks. So I think at that moment, it will hit a different level of realness, but it definitely feels real. And I feel a sense of accomplishment you know, buy it. Like it's, it's something that I always wanted to do. And, and it came out the way that I hoped it would come out when I thought, hey, I should write a book about the stuff that I've been working on. So in that sense, yeah, absolutely. Well, why don't we um, begin where a normal podcaster would at the beginning and talk a little bit about your book? I mean, eh, why start there? That's boring. You know, Let's we have too much right history in. to just go through traditional formats. I know. It's so dumb. Well, you did write this amazing book about the world of human resources, but unlike me, you didn't make fun of it. You are trying to be productive and thoughtful. So tell us about your book. So the book is really the, uh, the kind of culmination of everything I've been working on and thinking about for the last five years from you know, HR open source and traveling the world and meeting with practitioners and, you know, understanding what they were struggling with and what they were doing really well at to the 21st century HR series and fast company last year where I got to, you know, do deeper dives in different organizations and businesses to the podcast where I've been able to interview CEOs and CHROs and chief people officers and talent leaders who who are really, I think, transforming the field. It, it's becoming something different. I shouldn't even say becoming for them. It is something different. And so the book, you know, I had all these disparate pieces of content out there that I thought were 
individually valuable. But as you know, you're a content creator, like you have podcasts that get lost in the ether. Even if it's a great conversation, it'll get lost in the ether. You have a great blog post. Even if it's in a place like Fast Company, it'll get lost in the ether. And I wanted to really kind of take everything that I've been thinking about, learning, working on, and create something that would be a bit more substantial and broader and lasting and that was really the spirit behind the book. So the book is kind of, it's, it's a roadmap to modern HR. It's a framework for modern HR that really kind of dissects some of the fundamental components of modern HR and talks about how they're different from legacy practices. Well, I love all of that because it really gives us a jumping off point to talk about why you're so optimistic about HR and why you believe in the future of HR. So share a story with us that really makes you feel good about where the industry is heading. You know, I think getting back to February of 2020, when this thing known as COVID-19 was beginning to you know, move from Asia to Europe, and the writing was on the wall that this was going to be a global phenomenon. And nobody practicing HR had been through anything like this. And nobody on the planet had been through anything like this. This is something unlike anything we'd ever seen before. And what I saw, and it started in these small networks and communities of CHROs and CPOs that I'm in, I started to see people having a conversation. How are you thinking about this? How are you going to adjust your business to X? What happens if Y happens? I saw those conversations grow and grow. And then I wrote a Fast Company article based on that, which led to that coronavirus open source HR comms document. As you know, HR is traditionally silos. We don't share anything. Everything is trade secrets. Everything is, is you know, walled off. And I'm a huge proponent of open source. I've always been advocating for that. But to see it happen at scale this year was so inspiring and satisfying. And to see like people be like, look, shit, I've never been through this before. What the hell are you doing? Like, how are you handling this? And like, oh, well, we haven't either, but we're trying to do this. Here's how we're communicating. Here's what our cadence is. Here's how we're shifting to remote. Here's how we're determining how we're going to support our employees through this. And to just see the level of open conversations around helping each other navigate these uncharted territories was to me, I was like, yep, that's it. Like that's, that's a turning point. And you, you can't go back to those legacy excuses for not sharing and not collaborating and, and not realizing that it's not zero sum. Everybody can win. Everybody can collaborate. Everybody can benefit from that. You know, Lars, I love your optimistic take on what just happened in the world of human resources. And COVID gave us a really good example of people coming together and sharing good ideas. And so now, okay, we nailed the pandemic, but there are a lot of other risks that are emerging, risks we're never going to even know that are going to hit us in the face. And I'm a little worried that we're not going to learn the lesson of COVID, which is to do some really good risk mitigation to really think about the future. You know, we've got climate change as one of the existential issues of our time that could disrupt power, transportation, health, safety, welfare. I don't hear HR people talking about climate change. So when you look at COVID, is that something to be proud of? Is that something you see continuing? Or are you a little worried like me? So uh, of course, I'm worried about those things. Those are macro human at risk things that you mentioned that, that the fate of our planet kind of depends on. I think that there's certain things that fall within the realm of what HR and people operators can influence and impact and, and certain things that I think go beyond their ability to influence at a macro level. It's more likely that we're going to die from climate change in the next couple of years than from coronavirus. I mean, the odds are not in our favor. And I think about whether it's growing typhoons out in Asia that have been just traumatic in the Philippines, right? Or, you know, hurricanes or earthquakes from fracking. I mean, there are all these things that we're doing to the planet that aren't just a threat to life, but they're a threat to business continuity. And I mean, I'm not 
Greta Thunberg here, but, you know, I see this as an emerging issue. And just like we didn't think pandemics were in the domain of HR professionals, I think climate change is yet another thing. I mean, there are a million examples like this, but I like that you're optimistic and think that if we can handle COVID, there's hope. What I would say is a lesson that we've learned in COVID that I think we will be able to apply to those other situations is that we have to be much more agile and less formulaic in our practices. And I know agile is a hot buzzword right now. We talk about it a lot. But what I mean by that is legacy HR had a playbook for everything, right? Playbooks don't matter anymore. Best practices don't matter anymore. Throw them out. It's about figuring out like what works for now and how can we design this in a way that when the shit hits the fan next, which it will, we can adjust and like maintain business continuity regardless of the circumstances. And so that is a lesson that I hope a lot of practitioners, well, I know a lot of them learned. I hope a lot of them hold on to because we're going to need that. Yes, this was a once in a generation calamity as it relates to COVID, but it's not the last thing that we're going to be dealing with and we have to be ready for it. What I love about you, Lars, is that you'll make fun of a word like agile while still respecting it and using it. So one of the buzzwords that I've heard lately, and I don't know if you've heard it, is structured discretion. And it bugs me like crazy. This is the philosophy that HR leaders are using when the company has not met its organizational goals or objectives, but they still want to give out raises and they still want to give out bonuses. So they're using structured discretion. Now, I hate that phrase. <laughs> Sounds ominous. I'm, I'm kind of with you there. Instead of being kind or compassionate or just doing the right thing, it's processized. It's structured discretion. That alone tells me we've got some work to do in HR, but you've met with HR leaders who would never use the phrase structured discretion. Who are some of your leaders that are mentioned in the book? One of the things that's so great about the book, from my perspective, is like, this isn't just Lars's take on X, Y, or Z. Like, there's wait, certain wait, topics... That's a, that's a good take to have, though, Lars. Come on. It's a fair take, but people, you know, people don't want to read 270 pages or whatever of like Lars's opinion on, on all these things. The other reality is, I own the fact that I'm not a practitioner, right? I've been out of that seat for seven years. I'm deeply connected to it, but I'm not in it. And so throughout the book, I have there over 50 people have contributed case studies, personal essays, quotes, stories, etc. Practitioners actually doing the work. I have a chapter on people analytics. I'm not a people analytics expert, but David Green is, Al Adamson is. I know the people who are, and I can harness their experience and their perspectives on all of those different things. So those are two people in the book, Caitlin Holloway, Katarina Berg, Anna Binder, Beverly Carmichael, uh, Madison Butler, who I know you had on your podcast recently. So again, over 50 people, I feel incredibly fortunate and grateful that they were willing to dedicate their opinions and their expertise and really, I think, give the book life so that it's not just, again, my singular take on all of these things. I'm able to frame it, but then bring in real experienced practitioner voices who are actually doing that work and lending you know, their voice to it to bring it to life. Hey, everybody. We're living in an era of uncertainty, but work was never designed to make us feel secure. Systems, processes, and programs were built for bosses, not employees. In my new book, Betting on You, How to Put Yourself First and Finally Take Control of Your Career, I'm going to teach you how to live a better life, enjoy work, and even be your own HR department, a skill that's needed whether we're in a pandemic or not, to advocate for yourself, avoid burnout, and form better personal and professional relationships. Betting on You is available wherever books are sold and audiobooks are streamed. The best place to buy the book is laurierudiman.com forward slash books. That's laurierudiman.com forward slash books. Buy Betting on You today. 
And that's one of the things I love about your book. I loved about the idea from the beginning because you're actually trying to connect your reader with real world practitioners. So do you envision a world where readers reach out from the book to those experts to connect with them directly? 100%. 100%. They will. And I think a lot of those people will respond. I had a conversation earlier today with somebody who reached out to somebody who's also in the book blind and formed a relationship with them and is having them speak at a conference and somebody who is probably one of the leading experts in their particular discipline. And so I think that a lot of people look at this idea of HR famous and people who have big brands and big names and they put them on this pedestal as if they're not just another person like you are. And so we've seen that. And I think hopefully people will have lots of new inspiration and ideas and people to learn from and connect with, which I think is also important because it's not just about their views on this book. If you read about somebody in a book or they contribute a quote and you're like, that's a really smart way to think about X, don't let it end there. Follow that person, connect with them on Twitter, connect with them on LinkedIn, see who are they reading, who are they following, where are they learning, where are they getting their information? All of that is gold for you if you're actually interested in learning about that topic. That's such a good take on that because sometimes I think we look at mentors as these formal individuals that we have a relationship with, we get on their Outlook calendar. And for me, some of the most important people in my life I've never met. I just follow them. I look and see what they're doing. I try to keep up with their ideas. And I take the stuff that I like and they become informal mentors. You know, Lars, I did that with you for a long time. Before we met, I'm like, oh, I like his stuff. And then when I finally got the chance to see you in the flesh, I grabbed it. <laughs> I mean, I literally like, Lars, come here. I want to talk to you, you know. I remember that day well. But but the funny thing is like, this is how this works. Like I was the same way with you. Like when I got to NPR and I knew that I wanted to start writing and I knew I want to start blogging. I'm like, well, who's really good at it? And Lori and lots of other people were inspirations. And so I followed you on Twitter. I connected on LinkedIn. I was like, who are they reading? What is inspiring them? And then I followed those people and I read their stuff and it just branches out. So like, look at these things, especially if you're reading about somebody in a book, don't look at that learning as a moment in time. Look at that as a starting point to then tap into all of their stuff and then their people's stuff, stuff. And it's a spider web of stuff, but it's uh, it's super valuable. And it's frankly, I think the best way to learn in this kind of networked, connected age. You know, Lars, what I love about your approach to this book is that you really understand that the practitioners are at the heart of HR. So I would assume that not everybody in the book is a VP of HR. We're not just reading about these highfalutin people who walk around with iPads all day making strategic decisions, right? I mean, these are people in the trenches of HR. Can you tell us the story of someone in the trenches that you actually admire and wrote about? One of the early chapters of the book is focused on diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And it's called Building a Company for Everyone. And I had a draft of an outline and I had ideas of what I wanted to say in the chapter. And then after George Floyd's murder and the protests and the the calls for social justice and the, frankly, the the introspection that the place that put me in of introspection and deep thinking and, and really the kind of reckoning with the field of HR and like our role in all of this broadly, I rewrote the chapter and I brought in lots of voices from non-VPs. There are some people who are VPs, but uh, from non-VPs, I want to understand much more about what we've gotten wrong in the past to understand like how we can actually do better in the future. And I think we had to kind of own our past and the lack of impact that we've had collectively. And I say we, I'm, I'm using the broad we here, the whole industry. It was really important to kind of tap into some of those voices and perspectives and experiences along with experts and along with CHROs to really contextualize that chapter in a a really meaningful way. You know, in writing my book, which I'm not talking about, I learned 
a lot about myself and I was actually surprised by some moments of the writing process, like what I wanted to say, how I was saying it. I mean, there was just so much that I was like, what? I didn't expect this at all. What was your journey like? I mean, you were talking to all these people, so you must have, you know, interviewed, sat down to write, maybe re-interviewed some people or did some more interviews. Anything about this whole process just I don't know, surprise you in a weird way? I'm surprised at how closely the book turned out to what I envisioned it would be and hoped it would be, which was a nice surprise. I do think what was interesting about writing the book is, you know, when the pandemic hit in March, I was like, great, I'm going to have, you know, all this time to just write. I'm going to crank out this book. I'll be done in, you know, six weeks. Yeah. I didn't write a word for two months. Not a single word. And then, you know, my publisher was furloughed for a period of time and they came back and said, okay, your deadline's in like three weeks. I'm like, yeah, but I need an extension because <laughs> I'm, I'm so far behind. But wait, wait, talk to me about why you didn't write for two months. So in the early days, I was working on that coronavirus open source doc and I knew that was important. I knew that was needed. And it was really important to me to, to be of service in that moment and kind of leverage. Like I have this network, I have different outlets to kind of get this content out and amplify it. So that was really important. It was one of those things where, you know, it doesn't sound like self-important, but I was like, the industry needs this and I'm in a unique position to support the industry in this way. So this is what I should be focusing on. And then after that, it was other projects. It was some work stuff, family. I mean, it was just like, I found everything I could do other than write. I don't know if it was like a weird manifestation of of writer's block, but I just, I didn't write. In hindsight, the procrastination, I think, allowed me to write a much better book. And I was able to talk about things like we talked about to open the show around open source fundamentally changing, you know, the field of HR and how that actually came to life during the pandemic and and give illustrations of that actually happening and like how we're thinking about remote and distributed work now, now that it wasn't just like a thing we all reacted to. Now we're like, okay, like we need to really actually rethink this and not, it's not a band-aid now. Now we have to really think about how we're designing work going forward. I like that the procrastination actually worked to your benefit. And so maybe it wasn't procrastination. Maybe it was just you kind of taking a pause and being patient with yourself. Although, Lars, you were procrastinating. I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, I, I was definitely like, I, I appreciate you giving me the out, but it was definitely procrastination. Well, you're right. I think the world looks different, though, completely different. I mean, everything's completely different. I think it's exhausting to talk about remote work. And yet that's the number one question that I'm getting. Like, what's work look like in 2021? I'm like, you tell me, jump. I don't know. So Lars, what's work looking like in 2021? And specifically, am I still going to have to work with my laptop on my ironing board? No, because since you know you're going to be doing it for longer, you're going to upgrade your ironing board to something a little bit more permanent. No, it's interesting. Like I, I wrote a piece for Fast Company last year called How HR Will Look Different in 2020. And the interesting thing looking back is that post actually became the foundation of the book. That post was really the core elements of how it looked different became the, the fundamental aspects of the book. And so my editor reached out and said, hey, could you write a piece for 2021? And I was like, I can. I'm like, what well, I'm I'm not going to make it a prediction piece because that's bullshit anyway. And like everybody does that. But I, I will say like, I will again, focus my lens on the progressive wing of, of HR. But I will say this is how these progressive teams and functions will look in 2021. And I think, you know, remote and distributed, my view there, and again, I will caveat this by saying this only applies to jobs that have the privilege of being able to work remotely. And there's a large population that does not. And so let's not, you say this is a, you know, everybody's going to be remote. Lots of people can't be remote, but for companies that can, distributed is your default now. 
period. You, you'll have offices again. You'll have people in offices again. You'll have some sort of a structure, but you will never have everybody back in an office. You just won't be set up by it that way anymore. You're going to have a population that will be either fully distributed, hybrid, whatever it might be. That's your, you know, quote unquote, new normal. Like I hate that term, new normal. <laughs> Wait, but like, new normal, distributed, remote work, agile. We're hitting them all. Structured discretion. Bingo. But uh, no, but I think, but that is, I mean, that's certainly uh, one aspect is that we're, we're not, you know, co-located is not going to happen at scale like it did in January. It's just, it's just not anymore. It's interesting to me. We used to talk about the workforce being introverted and extroverted. And I like to think of it as avoidant. That's what I, I have done some research on these Jungian terms and think people who are introverted want to avoid other people and people who are extroverted want to avoid themselves. And like the dialogue in their head. So that's kind of like the Jungian root of that. Did, did you just make up Jungian? Is that a real no, word? No, like is that Carl a... Jung, you know, uh, like Jungian. Uh, okay, Jungian. okay, okay, so, okay, fair, fair. All right. So this is what I believe about introverted and extroverted, but I lose this argument all the time because people love to classify themselves that way. And now I see individuals returning to work, like literally returning to work, like they're going to the office, including my husband, who would identify as introverted. But I think there's just something really interesting happening where community matters. And even people like Ken who normally wouldn't care if he looked anybody in the eye all day long, is dying for community. So how's community going in the world of work and specifically in the world of HR? If anything, these events have underscored the importance of community. And, you know, you and I have been in communities and proponents of communities for, for years. And uh, the benefit is so clear. I think that especially in HR, like it can be a lonely job, particularly if you're talking about at the leadership level, it can be insanely lonely. You can't talk to your employees about some of the stuff you deal with. You can't talk to your executive peers about some of the stuff you deal with. So there, there's a fair amount of stuff in your world. You can't talk to anybody about. And it's not always happy, fun promotion type stuff. Like this is real shit that you're dealing with and it's emotional and it's hard. And if you don't have those peer communities that you can confide in, that you can commiserate with and sometimes you're going to struggle. And so I've seen lots of engagement in some of the different CHRO and CPO communities that I'm involved in because I think that they've just know that they've needed each other. They've needed each other to overcome. I knew somebody who was a CPO at a company and they had a layoff and one of their employees killed them themselves. And they got on email and said, hey, I have a super sensitive situation. Has anybody experienced this? Like, what do I do? Wow. That's just the level of, uh, of emotional stress that that requires. If you don't have those peer support systems, it's really hard. So I think it's, it's hugely important that you have that. It's self-care. <laughs> it's self-preservation. It's all of that. You know, I love that you brought up self-care as a part of this discussion because introvert, extrovert, we're all going through it. We all need self-care. And yet so many of us don't really understand what that means. We think it could mean, I don't know, meditation or going out and buying something. Do you talk about self-care at all in your book? I know this is something you you're passionate about and making sure that everybody's physical, emotional, mental well-being is on par with like being healthy. So talk to me about self-care in the age of COVID and HR. And I touched on it a little bit, to be honest, like that could be its own book. It probably should be its own book. I cover burnout specifically for CHROs because of all the things that I just mentioned, all the things that they carry, all the stress, all the isolation, burnout is running rampant. And we use this analogy in, you know, you hear it all the time, like you have to put on your oxygen mask first before you take care of others. And they're not doing that. Like, they're just like, they're like, I gotta, I gotta keep me, you know, my employees supported. I've got to keep my, my leaders yeah, engaged. But and why? And don't they know that you can't do anything good in this world on four hours of sleep? I mean, you can't, it's impossible. I know that, you know that they probably know that 
that, but I think that the weight of the responsibility they feel in this moment, especially 2020 and all the things we've gone through, can be overwhelming. And there's just such a desire to to try to to help and support and do all the things you can. And I think so. I think that you know burnout is a, is a real issue that's happening in in the space right now because of those communities. People are realizing that they're not alone. It's not just them. Like lots of people are going through that, and they're talking. They're sharing tips on self care and ideas. So I do think that that is starting to shift now, which I think is really healthy. But uh, certainly, you know, a couple months ago, it was uh, it was rampant. You know, I am worried about burnout because burnout unchecked turns into PTSD. I mean, people will be walking around truly physically impacted by the emotional trauma that we've been feeling. And I just don't know how you lead a people function if you yourself are worn out or you're suffering PTSD-like symptoms. But yet, I think we're going to start to face this in the next six months. Leaders who, executive chief people officers, like leaders who are like, I'm done. I'm burned out. That's enough. And I worry about the talent pipeline under that as well. Does any of this resonate with you? So I spent a lot of my time working in tech. The demand for tech chief people officers and heads of people is astronomical, right? Like I think that's that's become part of like the the lore of Silicon Valley and tech companies is like people are, okay, I've got to invest in a CPO or a head of people early. I've got to really be, you know, mindful of building solid people practices that can scale. So that that's a good thing. The challenge is they're all like, okay, great. So I want a veteran CPO who's, you know, been through three exits and is done. Well, there's only a handful of those people out there and they're getting hit up every day with calls for opportunities. So I think, you know, that idea of building a bench and I'm starting to see more external training programs and things specifically oriented at developing the next generation of CPO, but we need it because the, the bench is pretty thin. And frankly, a lot of these people and they've been able to cash out from those they don't want to go back. They don't want to deal, put themselves in that stress. They could do consulting. They could be like me and like do consulting and move from one project to the next and not have that skin in the game that could be very difficult. So yeah, I do think that that is important for the future of the field is we've got to have more programs that are developing the next generation, but also doing it with a future-oriented lens around modern HR. It's not about these legacy bodies of knowledge or organizations. They're not preparing the next generation of leaders. So we, we've got to fill that need elsewhere. Really good stuff, Lars. If you wanted our listeners to leave with one big idea from this conversation, what would it be? You know, I hope they catch some of my enthusiasm about the future of the field. I know that's not a specific thing, but I've seen so much interesting work and I've seen some of those up and coming leaders who I think are just passionate about the field and looking at it in a very differently than kind of our legacy predecessors. I think the future of the field is in good hands. You know, and I'm an optimist by nature, as you know, but the book is really, I wanted to give context to that. Like, this is why I'm bullish on the future of the field. And so, yeah, I hope people feel, you know, read it and put it down feeling inspired for what's possible and inspired for what they can do in their own career. Well, Lars, I'm super stoked that you spent some time with us today. We'll have your book and all of the links in the show notes. But why don't you tell us? I mean, people are going to be like, I'm going to go to Amazon. But do you want them to go anywhere else? Go to Amazon. <laughs> I mean, you can go to Amazon. You can go anywhere. You can go to, you can go to the, the Publisher's Cooking page. Amazon is easy. On your and, website, uh, right, dude? I mean, it's going to yeah, be Yeah, I linked to it on the website. Yeah. So, you know, redefininghr.com is kind of the hub for everything. So podcast, book, video stuff, whatever you need, it's all centralized there. You got to make it easy for people to find what they need, right? You know, I'm learning from the best. Thank you, Lars, so much for being on the podcast today. Lori, thanks for having me on. It's always fun to catch up. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lars Schmidt. To learn more and to find his new book, Redefining HR, Transforming People Teams to Drive Business Performance, head on over to punkrockhr.com. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. 
We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR.